Let's jump into this. If you have a Bible, uh, I want, want you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. This is the text we're going to talk about tonight. This text contains within it a, a, a shift and a revolution in the realm of singleness, unlike any teaching ever given in history. That's a bit of a meta claim. Let's have a look at this. This is Jesus actually talking about the nature of divorce, but then he takes divorce and inserts a teaching about singleness on it that at the, the hearers of his time just w- would have struggled to comprehend. Let's have a look at God's word. Jesus replies, Mo- Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. And then Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 no. Sorry, I must have explained that wrong. Jesus says, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And the one who can accept this should accept this. So they're in a debate about divorce. And Jesus has said, hey, did did I tell you about eunuchs? Like, what's a eunuch? It's about divorce. He goes, let me talk to you about the eunuchs. Jesus has a whole teaching on here, and he actually makes the claim that if you can live like a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven, you should. Can you accept this? This is God's word. Now, hearing a teaching about divorce and then eunuchs and in a culture like ours, it's just how do you put these things together? But you are the generation in American history that will live as singles longer than any other generation that's been alive. Now, I am not single. I can barely remember being single. I have children, my sons on a gap year. I have older children. But about 80 plus percent of people in our church in New York are single. Everyone I know is single. All of my friends are single. I spend so much time talking with single people. And so I prepared this talk in community, talking with my single friends. So in some sense, receive this as insights from singles in New York, speaking through God's word to the folks in Portland. Are you ready? The median age of first marriage in America rose to 29.5 years of age for men, and for women it reached 27.4 years of age. By the time young, today's young adults reach the age of 50, one of four of them will have been single all their life, just chosen not to get married or it hasn't happened for them. And rather than producing this deep sense of joy, there's actually a lot of anxiety around singleness in our society. One author puts it this way, singles today are a widow of sorts needed to be listened to and needing a framework for who we are and how we fit into the Christian family. What does it mean to abstain from sex while respecting sexual wirings? What does it mean to be content in one's singleness while longing towards marriage? Can I be sexual without a spouse? And if a spouse is a spouse something I'm allowed to keep hoping for? What does it mean to be beautiful and embody sexuality? What does it mean to wait well and proactively or to desire genuinely and passionately? Have you ever asked any of those questions in your season of singleness. People can sometimes feel like the only ones that really matter, like life really begins when you grow up and you get married, and then you get taken seriously when you have children. And until then, you're sort of like a junior member of the family of God. They can feel like there's loneliness, rejection. And for a lot of people, particularly as they get older, one of my friends said to me, I just never saw my life going like this. Well, into my 30s, I just thought I'd have small children right now. And there's no prospect on the horizon whatsoever 
of any relationship. Now, because of the incredibly healthy benefits that social media brings into all of our lives, <laughs> when you get on Instagram and you start seeing sort of, you know, friends from your high school years or your college years and they're growing up and you look at your feed, which is a lot of, a lot of photos of coffee with friends or on your own, and you compare your photos of all of the things that they seem to be doing, having a great time, spouses getting promoted, children having their first experiences and their idyllic joy watching their childhood all over again, it can produce this sense in the heart, will anyone ever want me? Will I have these experiences? As I get older and older and more young single people begin flooding the market, am I going to sort of age out of the category of desirability, particularly in a youth-obsessed culture? Should I use technology? How proactive should I be in my relationship with God? Am I a Calvinist or an Arminian? And what on earth does that mean when it comes to dating? Like that really matters. This is an area where it seems abstract, but all of a sudden I'm having a crisis of theology. I'm so lonely. Should I date a supportive non-believer? What about sexual baggage and mistakes I've made? And what does that mean moving forward if I do get married? There's not enough eligible people at this church. And if I date someone in this church and I break up, is there enough other churches like this that have the right combination of teaching and worship and accessible community and great hospitality where if I don't make it here, I can just roll into another community? Is loneliness going to crush me or inhibit me? I don't have the gift of singleness and I am burning with desire. Dear God, what do I do? Between 16 and 24 years of age, according to a survey done in the UK, between those age groups are the loneliest people on planet Earth. Loneliest people of all ages. On top of this, we have the removal of sexual taboos in our culture. So at least there was a thing like back in the day where it's like, hey, it's better to, it's better to, it's better to marry than burn with lust. So hey, you're not perfect, but you're not bad. And so let's get married. So there was a whole sort of theory around this idea of like waiting for sex. It sort of was given... To, to the context of marriage, it was like it was one of the motivations that was worked into the framework here. But in a post-Christian understanding of sexuality in our society, it's like you don't need to get married to have sex. So what does that have to do with following Jesus and how does that roll in? Well, that's why the Bible immediately begins to sort of provide immediate hope, at least in terms of what it teaches, because it actually has a theology of singleness. It possesses within it. Just, just to frame this up before we really unpack it, don't rush past this one. Jesus Christ was single. Yeah, but he was God. Enough with that heretical philosophy there. Fully God, fully man. A high priest that can sympathize in every way like we can. And so Jesus, the greatest man who's ever lived, chose not to marry and was a fully functioning, deeply happy, joy-filled human being. Jesus, as the archetype of all humanity, prove that you don't have to be married to be fulfilled. Paul, the greatest missionary the world has ever known, seems to have been seized with the vision of Jesus, his relationship with Jesus, where even though he was aware of these other horizontal relationships, yes, marriage, yes, romantic attraction, yes, all these sorts of things, it, it, it seems like he was seized with this beatific vision of Jesus where even though he knew this was here, he kept getting pulled into this upward call, the glory of Jesus. And so he showed, not out of sort of some harsh self-denial, but out of this beautiful contentment with the Son of God, he was able to sustain singlehood. 
In the Roman culture, you basically had no status in society without a spouse. And yet, in the church of Jesus, single people were welcomed and they were honored. They could access a sense of nobility. And also, something kind of distinct amongst other traditions is that Christians don't have an eschatological vision of marriage. And here's what I mean by that. We're not Mormons. Your marriage is not forever. So we don't have this vision like, you better choose well, because 100 billion years from now, when you're on planet just doing your thing, it's still going to be... We don't have that vision. Marriage is a temporary institution on this earth. And so we don't feel the weight of eternal marriage. In the Mormon church, for example, if you don't get married, you can't be elevated to the highest level of godhood and salvation. In the Christian church, that's not a factor whatsoever for your salvation. So we have these immediate affirmations when we even begin to develop a theology of singleness that are present for us in the Scriptures. Now, that doesn't necessarily take the pain of navigating this away, particularly in our culture. Some people in the world today feel the controversy of singleness. Some people feel it deeply and acutely as a pain, the pain of singleness. And for them, they're like, I will never be happy. I will not be fulfilled until I find that soulmate. And there's a lot of idolatry in the Christian church around this idea. There's my soulmate. Everyone's all of a sudden a Calvinist. All of a sudden, here it comes. I believe that God has one person for me. And in his sovereign timing, it will come to me. And this is how life is going to go. And this can produce tremendous distress. Keller puts it this way, I want someone who will fill every vacancy in me, awaken dormant gifts inside, continuously enrapture me in otherworldly emotional bliss. And this puts tremendous pressure on another human being. <laughs> you ever gotten to a, it started dating with someone, you're like, how's it going? And really quickly, you're like, you're just reversing out of the driveway. You're like, whoa, man, we got some neediness here. Like there's some expectations nobody can fulfill. But some people feel this pain and they think that there's, they're lacking something until they can bring this together. Well, the challenge of this in many ways is that this whole design, it's not just that it's idolatrous, but it's a product of late modern consumerism. We're looking, industries are looking for ways to invent holidays and invent frameworks they can monetize and prey on to manipulate. And in many ways, the romance industry is one of those. Singles idolize marriage and treat it as the ultimate goal. And then when you do get married, you can get stuck searching for the idealized marriage and be frustrated that you waited so long for it and it's not everything you hoped. This can produce tremendous frustration and disillusionment. And so for these people, singleness is sort of like a purgatory, this horrible state you're stuck in until some way, shape, form, another, you can finally find someone to love. On the other side of that, in our world, you have people who just think like singleness is like the best thing ever, man. Why would you ever submit yourself to the legalized oppression and patriarchy of marriage? Marriage is legalized slavery. It's legalized oppression. It's legalized prostitution in our society. This should not exist. And for some people, it's like, I never want to commit. This is the greatest time on history to be born right now because you can sleep with so many people at such a reduced rate with any sort of long-term commitment. This is actually can be an unhealthy connection to singleness. Eddie Cantor says this, marriage is an attempt to solve problems together which you didn't even have when you were on your own. <laughs> and people can sometimes think, why bother? In the midst of all of this craziness, Jesus gives an opinion on singleness. 
and he talks about the idea of eunuchs. Now, Barry Danilak in his book, Redeeming and Singleness, has a tremendous insight about what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about eunuchs. In this passage, Jesus says there's three kinds of eunuchs. There's those who are born eunuchs, which means there's people who, I think the best articulation here, these are people who have uh, intersex people. Jesus has an awareness of sexual minorities. There are people who are born this way, different from both male and female people. He seems to include this in there. Then there's people who are made into eunuchs. They're either slaves or for political reasons or whatever to serve in places of power, particularly in royal courts. The people were sometimes castrated or made into eunuchs so that they wouldn't... uh, behave inappropriately in any positions of power, and they can dedicate themselves to serving the families. But then Jesus says there's those who choose, not that they physically castrate themselves, but there's those who choose to remain fruitless in terms of family and offspring for the sake of serving God. Now, this, again, was a revolution. You understand the Old Testament narrative here. Jesus is so... I don't know, we don't have time. You get it. This is a great church. But my point is the understanding of salvation and covenant blessing, participation in the covenant people of God in the Old Testament was a vision of land, tribal land granted to you. It was a, as a vision of family, the promises of offspring and generations were huge Old Testament covenantal promises. And so participating in covenant life, believing that God sovereignly controlled the womb in the Old Testament meant that if you had land and you had a family, you had children, that you were living under the visible blessing of God. This was the Jewish view of marriage at the time. Now, so their vision of a eunuch was, was they had no visions for them. In fact, the new encyclopedia of Judaism begins by saying marriage is a command in the Jewish tradition and celibacy is deplored amongst the Jewish community. So this vision right here where Jesus speaks in and says, I know you've understood the covenant blessing of God one way, but I'm telling you, it's about choosing to live like a eunuch now. It would have rattled them. Now the Greek view, uh, with their obsession with the classical form, was it to become a eunuch, to be altered sexually, was to basically mutilate the possibility of human beauty. So they looked down on particularly male eunuchs in this context as less than masculine, effeminate, and they didn't thrive in a, in a patriarchal honor society. And so you have people who have no acceptance in Greco-Roman society and in the Jewish tradition were second-class citizens barred from participating in covenant worship. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, it actually says those with crushed testicles or have been severed cannot participate in covenant worship. And it also says that animals in this condition cannot be offered as sacrifices as well. But there was a third category between the Jewish vision and the Greek vision around eunuchs, and it was the idea of a eunuch in Eastern culture. They were those who were called to serve the royal household, who made their way into the royal household, who became treasured members of the family. And then Jesus seems to reference this prophecy that's recorded in the book of Isaiah connecting to this. Listen to Isaiah 56. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever." 
Now, this is interesting. The eunuch is blessed in his faithfulness to the Lord. He is blessed because he has an internal inheritance in the temple of the Lord, independent of children or family. He is a model of one lacking physical family, yet still fully blessed by God and welcomed in. He is completely sufficient to serve the Lord and bear fruit in his kingdom. And the despised eunuch has been redeemed. He's no longer a symbol of reproach and stigmatization. Rather, he's a positive modeler of undistracted and unfettered service to the Lord. Now, in the book of Acts, when you see Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we see a case study of that. God, Philip's a, a wild man in the New Testament, doesn't, doesn't get enough um, play. But he has this encounter where there's an Ethiopian eunuch who's meditating through the book of Isaiah. And then all of a sudden, as he's sort of there in the spirit, he says, what are you reading? And so I'm you know, having a bit of a chat with Isaiah. He says, do you understand what you're reading? So he pops up and he shares the gospel. And you remember the Ethiopian eunuch asked the question, there's water here. Is there anything that prohibits me from being baptized? And I think what the eunuch's saying is like, look, I've studied the Old Testament, but I'm a eunuch. Am I welcome to participate in the covenant life of the people of God? And what does he say? Nothing will hinder you. Welcome to the family of God. The coming of Jesus has changed the nature of singleness in the world. The New Testament does not interpret the mandate given to Adam, Noah, and Jacob as a divine imperative impingent upon all, nor a traditional marriage, procreation, and material prosperity explicitly associated with covenantal blessing in the New Covenant. Instead, the central message of the New Testament is proclaiming the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. It does not require marriage, does not require children, does not require a land. Jesus' primary concern in his ministry is not to provide a prescription for living well in the land, but living well in the kingdom of God, a new life in the spirit that is eternal life beginning now. Such new spiritual formation is the process of becoming a disciple of Jesus. Hence, though, in the New Testament, we're not given any, any, any explicit mandate to marry and to procreate and have children. We are given a new mandate to create more spiritual children, to live in the kingdom of God, not an actual land, and to go into all the world and bring great commission. If you were to study Greek and to go to a passage like uh, Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says, all over the world the gospel is increasing and bearing fruit, and you were to map it in the Septuagint, the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you know what you will find? That what Paul has done is taken the creation command in Genesis and translated it to the gospel and the people of God through discipleship and mission in the New Testament. It's a staggering Greek study. So in the Old Testament, to know that you were blessed, to know that you were welcome, to know that God loved you was about family, children, and the land. And But to know in the New Testament that there's a place for you in the kingdom of God, it's not about any of those things. It's about having the kingdom first. It's about spiritual children, and it's about fruit of the Spirit. So this means you don't have to be married for that. There is an openness for you in your single state to have a staggering, breathtaking inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says in Matthew 19, the one who can accept this should accept it. Imagine you're having coffee with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, how's it going? It's like, it's quite good. I'm Lord of all. Um, <laughs> look, I, look, I'm single and I've got a problem with you about my singleness. Like I feel like a junior member of the body of Christ. And so I'm just wondering, should I, what, what do I do about that? He says, you're single? I want you to hear me. I want to use you in your singleness. And if you can accept this, trust me, there's more blessing in this than you can fathom. If you can accept voluntarily living like a eunuch for my kingdom, 
you'll have disproportionate rewards. If you can accept what I'm saying, do it. Do it. Have you even considered that? Have you honestly ever even considered that this may be for you? That if you want, you can, and it will bring fruit. Now, why would he say this? What, what does he want to happen? What's released in singleness that's not a being able to release in the same way in marriage? What is this? What's his vision for this? The Greek word, kareo, translated receive in this dialogue, receive this, typically connotes the idea of making room for something. It was a philosophical term that was used to, to make, basically, someone drops a revelation on you and you need to create space to process it. So Jesus says, anyone who can receive this teaching on singleness, don't rush past this. Create space in your life to consider the possibilities of what this could be. What does Jesus want to make space for? Four things. And this is what I want to talk about, the opportunity before you tonight if you're single. Number one, devotion to God himself. Devotion to God himself. We have to learn to get our primal relationship with God right before we can flourish in any human relationship. This is an interesting phrase. So this is not a phrase where God wants you to have some space to do your own thing. God actually wants us to bring us deeper into his heart. Have you ever thought about this? God just wants you for himself. He just wants you for himself. He wants some time from you to just deepen your intimacy and relationship with him. When we bring God-sized needs to human beings, we crush them. But when we bring God-sized needs to God, he handles them. The word devotion in Greek is a combination of two concepts, the word good or well, and the phrase to be close beside. It suggests both a passive element of sitting and listening to someone and an active element of tending to his or her desires. A great English word that captures this word is the meaning attentive. Think of a good waiter at a restaurant. He's attentive in both these respects. He's attentive to your words, listening carefully as you speak and what you order. He's attentive to your wishes, working hard to fulfill your desires. We are meant to be attentive to the Lord in the same way. Devotion expresses itself in attentiveness to his word and attending to his work. Study and service, the pursuit of intimacy with him and activity that pleases him, says Ben Stewart. So God has for every single one of you, at least for a portion of your lives, maybe for good, ordained a season of singleness, And it's not an extended adolescence. It's not a pursuit of career or ambition where you push off married or kids to get ahead yourself. And it's not a preparatory phrase of getting your act together so one day you can get married. God has ordained this unique freedom and stage of singleness so that without any distraction or ambition, you can just devote yourself to him. He just wants you for himself. I have a friend who's a crazy prophetic intercessor in prayer. He spent 18 years praying six hours a day. He's one of those guys. (laughs) I said, one night God woke him up with this tremendous sense of urgency. So he wakes up. He goes to his table. He gets his tape recorder for a prophetic message. He's got got books. He's, He's ready to go. And he says, yes, Lord. And nothing happens. So he waits. And he waits. And nothing happens. Then he goes to bed. Next night, same thing. God wakes up so clearly, vividly. So he comes to the table. And, yes, Lord. I, I speaks. Accepts, Lord, speak. The servant's ready. And he just sits there. Nothing. And so he's like, look, I've, what a, what a, maybe my intercessor's broken. I mean, like, I, don't know, I don't know what's happening here. So he goes to one of his mentors and says to his mentors, hey, hey uh, I've, I'm having this experience. God's repeatedly waking me up. And when I get to the table, Lord, what's the burden? Is a missionary in problem? Is revival needed in Indonesia? Father, here I am to intercede. And he said, 
Oh, you don't understand God's heart. He probably woke you up because he just wants to be with you. Sometimes God just wants presence, not intercession. He just wanted to share his heart with you. So the next night he wakes up, Father, here I am. His approach is different. Do you know that Jesus is jealous for your attention? He just, he just wants to know you. He cares about you. And so God has this season of singleness or this vision of singleness where we can just grow in our intimacy and love for him. Do you see the beauty of Jesus? Do you see his light, his justice, his love, his mercy, his power, his grace, his compassion, his kindness, his bravery, his courage, his love? And is that the sweetest thing in your heart? Do you have one of these beautific visions, sort of like Paul, where you swept up in this glory of Christ, the upward call, and that there's no man or woman on earth who can remove this because this is the primary thing. This is what God wants. He wants this for our lives. So I would encourage you in your life right now, if, you, if, if there's things you've wanted to explore in your relationship with God, use your singleness to do it. You ever had a question about theology? Like you've really like, what about that theology? Why not devote a year to mastering it? Have you ever had a philosophical question or a discipleship question or wanted to understand your spiritual gifts or know God's word better? Why not just devote yourself? Why not make the goal of your life attending to the presence of Jesus? Jesus says there is a special reward for those who could enter into relationships but choose not to. The secrets of his heart will be shared with them. So Jesus says, if you can, live like a eunuch, you should, because he wants to devote himself to you, and he wants your devotion back from him. Second thing is this. Single people have an ability in many ways, due to their circumstances and agility, to make a genuine difference in the world. What the typical... Now, look, I, I live in Manhattan. I, get, I have single friends working 90, 90 hours a week in investment banks. I'm not making an assumption, but I am saying this. That when you get married, particularly when you have children, whatever pockets of margin you have just disappear into a black hole of obligation. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. What you have now is two things, freedom to move at will and time to respond. And these resources are granted to you. They will diminish over time as obligation encroaches in your life. But particularly when you are young and single, you have more time than any other kind of person on the planet, particularly in Western culture. Children don't have the freedom you have. They have a lot less responsibilities, but they have very little autonomy. The elderly don't have the level of freedom because often they don't have the resources. They don't have the energy or the physical resources that you have. Married people don't because they have a concern for their spouse. So you have an unprecedented amount of discretionary time in a fast-dwindling season of your life right now, and it's meant to have a purpose. Philip Zambardi, who's written a lot of stuff on uh, the role of men in society, says this, the average person by the time they turn 21 has spent 10,000 hours playing video games. 10,000 hours. I mean, you know the 10,000 hour rule. You can become world-class in anything in 10,000 hours. 
And you know this, you're more aware of this than any other generation in history. The world is on fire today. The world is broken today. We have war, slavery, injustice, crippling poverty, and we need some of you to rise up with the compassion of Jesus in your heart. Put the video games away. Find your place in the body of Jesus and hold your hands against the wounds of the world. The world waits for you. Just, just my personal thing. If you're going to clap, clap. Don't golf clap. It's all or nothing in my communication, folks. So if you clap, we'll clap. You are a generation defined by FOMO, fear of messing out. I right now cancel out FOMO in all of your lives, and I replace it with FOSO, fear of squandering opportunities. I speak FOSO over you in Jesus' name. Do not, I plead with you, waste your energy and your vision and your passion on trivialities. You don't have to be older. You don't have to have more money. You don't have to have a spouse to do something significant in this world. Please give your heart to make a difference in the world. You're going to look back. Most of you probably will marry. And you're going to look back on this season and your 20s are not for Instagram-worthy travel photos. They are designed to be used by God as serious disciples. The deci- there's nothing wrong, no judgment, no judgment. If you follow me on Instagram, I'll be in Hawaii next week, just like laughing at her. For Jesus, for Jesus. But do you have a vision for your life? Are you serious about a cause? When someone say to you, is your conversation like, what breaks your heart? What are you giving yourself to? You have no idea how God will arrange history around people who have his heart and are willing to respond to his needs. And it's just like Jesus is like, look, if you can accept this, accept this, and I will use you in ways you cannot comprehend and my prayer for you is that you go, as you go back to your apartments, as you go back to your homes, the Holy Spirit will give you a vision on your knees before him about how you can be used in the world. You live at a time of history where you can get to almost anywhere on earth in two days' notice. The apostles will be angry at you in heaven. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you mean? Paul's like, you know how many shipwrecks I went through? Like seriously, <laughs> I'm trying to cross the sea. You can almost do that in a drone in four minutes. Foso. Third thing, God wants us to be distraction free. He wants us to be free from distraction. Look at what 1 Corinthians 7 says. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned with the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in the right way of undivided devotion to the Lord. So his vision of singleness is around two things, to promote what is appropriate and to keep you free from distraction. Honestly, if you're always in sort of alert mode when you're single, It's like always just scanning every environment for who's here in every situation you're in. 
You have no idea what you could be missing out on in terms of what the Spirit is wanting to do and how God is wanting to use you. Imagine this, imagine this sort of framework of distraction. It's Wednesday night. You've had a long day at work or at school. It's hard and you're bored. So on the commute home, you pull your phone out. There's a certain app that you pull up and you just start swiping through profiles. By the time you get home, you've seen 40, 50, 60 people. You get a match. You go out on Saturday, you stay up late, but you don't get the text back. And it's just in your head. And so now you're heading to church. As you get ready to come into church, you're like, what, are, what am I going to do when I enter in? I want to bring my heart to worship. But that person that on Wednesday that I was like matched up with, like that never came through. Is it, was my profile bad? It was like, what, I, I, like what's actually happened? Bless the Lord. Oh, like you're, but in the back of your mind, there's a thing that you're working on. The band's leading worship, and this is all you're thinking, and then the text comes through. Well, the match, I don't even know how it works, so I'm struggling with the analogy. But they're like, hey, let's get together or whatever. Now, you've matched yourself with a Christian, obviously. <laughs> and they're like, let's catch up after uh, John Mark's sermon. Let's, let's, practice, let's do a practice together. <laughs> but you can't see him in the room. You can't see where they are. So in worship, you start thinking, do I go, do I go Bethel Pentecostal like I'm all in with God? <laughs> Do I go sort of underarm, sort of open, charismatic, receiving from the Lord? To like what? I, 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 now, you're, a, you're, you're aware of what's happening in this place. You're reaching for a paper Bible to model thorough knowledge of the Word of God. You're not theologically shallow. You go, do you go forward at prayer, particularly on a weekend about sex, symbolizing brokenness and history? Or do you come forward and sort of like pretend to be on the prayer team like you've mastered this and you're here to serve? <laughs> I'm just saying. Now another person's like, you know what? I'm not always going to just be scanning my environment. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to focus on the Lord. And I'm just going to put that out of my head. I'm going to uninstall. I'm going to get that out of my head that I'm always on. And I'm just going to devote myself to the Lord. I'm going to enter into a season with just distraction-free. I'm going after his heart. This is what I would do with my life. And you think about the attitude, you come into church and you're saying, Father, I'm here to give you my worship. I'm here to get my eyes on you. Spirit, I'm sensitive. What do you want to do in me? Jesus, form me into your image. And you're just going into it. And during worship, you're actually worshiping, focusing on God. And during the sermon, you're not thinking what you're going to do with the knowledge. You're just sitting there saying, Father, speak to my heart. I want to live this out in front of you. This is a different approach. And if you get that scanning mentality off and you just focus on devotion, you'd be amazed at what God can do. You'd be amazed at what God can do. We have so many people in our church in New York who've just said, you know what, Lord, I don't know how long the season's going to last. I'm just going to put this out of my mind and I'm going to put you in my mind. And some of these people are finding such joy, such intimacy, such depth, such fruit in ministry and one of the, the craziest things, and I just say this perhaps as a promise to you, the level of supernatural power flowing through their lives and their devotion to Jesus is remarkable. And in our community, we are sort of seeing God rewarding with power and his presence, disproportionate anointing to those who devote themselves to him. 
So there's a reward for those who diligently seek him that is manifesting, themselves, manifesting itself as spiritual power in the lives of those in our church. So Jesus is like, look, if you can receive this, I just want you to devote yourself to my heart. If you can see this, I want to use you to make a difference in the world. If you can receive this vision, I want to get the distractions out of your life so you really focus on what matters. And then lastly, I want to actually help you know who you are. I want you to discover yourself. So a lot of people have never really, that they, they walk around with a very fragile identity, very shallow sense of themselves, and they haven't quite ever self-actualized. So much parental obligation, so much image management to make themselves attractive to this group or person, so much work on their vocation to be the kind of person that can move forward in a particular career field, but they don't know what they really believe and they don't know who they really are. And it's important, and Jesus offers this deep sense of self-awareness, real discovery as to who you are, your gifts, your calling, and your preferences. Kierkegaard says this, now with God's help, I shall become myself. But in our culture, now with my partner's help, I will become the person they want so I don't lose them. Now with a culture's help, I'll collapse inward on myself through selfishness. No, with God's help, you become yourself. Do you know know who you are? Do you own your faith? Is your identity secure, independent of any other horizontal relationship? Do you have this deep, deep sense of just being the, the, the known and loved child of God who can move through the world without with a deep sense of wonder and security? Are you just fragile? Are you a chameleon in every environment? You're shifting out of a fear of rejection. Sometimes we're called into this season because God wants to show us who we actually are. That's only found in the heart of Jesus. You remember uh, the Sons of Thunder in the, the Bible? I always love that, like, thunder, ah, and like, you can see them coming in to do ministry, they're like, we're the, we're the sons of thunder, it's quite a strong soundtrack, and they come into the ministry, and they, they get everything wrong, every single thing wrong, arguing about who's the greatest, getting their mom to sort of ask for special privileges in the realized kingdom, left hand, right hand, uh, Jesus goes to a Samaritan village, and they're like, Lord, they've rejected you, would you like us to call down fire from heaven? that you've just come from on your behalf, even though you're here to save, save them. It's just like the most awkward dynamic. And yet one of the sons of thunder we read about has a complete and utter identity shift. At the end of Jesus' life, you're aware of this moment, total crisis. Jesus, uh, Judas is left to betray him. Peter said, I'll never deny you, and he's just about to. But John, it says, rests his head on Jesus' chest. The son of thunder's identity is converted into apostle of love because he takes time in crisis to focus on Jesus. For the rest of his life, he's just, and he's so cheeky, isn't he, honestly? Like he writes a gospel and he's like, the one Jesus loves. He's just like, who's that? Oh, that's me. He just sort of like puts it in the Bible. But he actually believes this. He's the one that Christ loves. He has that conversion of identity. That only comes when you get the other things out of your mind and you know who you really are. Have you responded to Jesus' invitation to come to his heart and have your identity shifted from proving and striving to being a child of love? That's what singleness gives you the ability to, unlike any other thing. So if, Jesus says, you can make space for this, you should. Because tremendous fruit will be brought. Now, we're running out of time, so just a couple of practical implications. Number one, 
as a single person in a, in a world like ours, where even what I'm saying, you're like, yeah, yeah, I want to believe it. I just want someone to hold my hand while you talk about it. <laughs> Can I say something to you as a pastor? And I say this seriously. There is nothing worse than compromising relationally out of loneliness. And it's, it's so easy to say, John, no, I'm telling you, being lonely in a bad marriage out of desperation or dis- disobedience is far worse than being lonely and single. The amount, the amount of strained and tragic relational fractures I've seen because people disobey God out of desperation and said he's not perfect, he supports me, spirit, all of these things lead to total disaster. So, Abby Smith says, Scripture says fulfillment, sexual or otherwise, does not come by marriage. Fulfillment comes by Christ and his body and our dependent participation and thus transformation, waiting, watching, and abiding in relentless love therein. Secondly, if you're single, I hope that you actually take the time in the space that Jesus calls for to get a vision for your singleness. Rather than seeing this as something that you're subjected to, I'm a victim of circumstance, have a vision of possibility. Do you have this for yourself? If these unmarried moments of your life are not spent in passionate pursuit of your maker, they will often be marked by a sense of aimlessness and frustration. Conversely, the most content single people I know are the ones who say this is a season for the Lord. Jesus himself used his singleness as an opportunity for devotion and making a difference in a distraction-free time, and even discovering who he was before the Father, the affirmation continually spoken over him. Jesus longs to know you more deeply. He longs for more intimacy with you. He longs to reveal himself to you, to win your love. The church needs you. It needs your gifts. It needs your leadership. It needs your passion. It needs your talent. The world needs you to bring your gifts to its brokenness, your creativity to its problems. We need single people on earth with a vision of their singleness for the glory of God. Now, to the church as well, which biases heavily towards married people, we have to take Jesus' word seriously of actually being the new family. The church needs to be a place where single people in a culture where there is so much temptation for them, they can actually thrive. We need to affirm the dignity of humanity, not just the dignity of marriage. We need to create real opportunities in leadership for single people so they can rise to the highest levels of participation in the body of Christ. And we need to realize that Jesus said, the family that is first to me is not my natural family, but it's the ones who love me and the ones who obey me. We also need to find practical ways to celebrate our single friends. Most celebrations that exist in our culture and in the church Our promotions around meeting someone, engagement, marriage, babies, baby birthdays. These are all these are wonderful things. But what do we celebrate for our single friends? Their birthdays. Cheers. We do we do that for everybody. We need a functional, creative, inclusive community that celebrates things like promotions personal goals met, major milestones in life, things that matter in the heart of that person. We need to come around them and celebrate those things. And if we do this, the church may actually be a place where Jesus' ideas can become reality because there's an ecosystem of support to make it happen in the community.
Now, ultimately, as we close here, all of us have to realize that we are called as Jesus' disciples to see him as our lover and our model and our comfort and our purpose. That's the call of the Christian life. So even if you're married, you're just married for a season. At the end of the day, all of us will be single before the Lord, swept up as his body and his bride, heading towards the true consummation of the universe, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So if you can, will you hear Jesus? If you can receive it, receive it. You don't have to have a family. You don't have to have children. You can serve God as you are and be welcomed in and have a name better than that of sons and daughters, serving in his kingdom with intimacy and impact and power and anointing, just as you are. So I speak over you, Foso. Do not (laughs) squander your opportunities. May God use you to bring beauty to his church and restoration to the world and infuse you with holy imagination.